Well, we are launching into a new series today called Light of the World, and I'm so excited about this. But before we dive into any of that, did any of you get to see John Christ this week? Did anybody go see him? Wasn't that great? That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and it's great to be able to laugh. You know, God designed us to be able to laugh. I think God is a God that has a sense of humor. When I read scripture, I see that, and especially when you study the context of things, you see, wow, that was pretty funny, God, that you would do that to the Egyptians like that because their God's, you know, it's very, very funny. Our God is a funny God, and I think it's great that he wants us to laugh and wants us to enjoy life, and that's what we got to experience this week, so it was a lot of fun. I think my favorite line, though, came from the Dustin Nickerson. Did you guys, I had never heard of Dustin Nickerson before, but he was fantastic. And he had this bit about those times where someone wants to say something and they can sense it bubbling up. And those of us who have figured it out, we know that we needed to shove that down. Remember that? And we're just not going to let whatever flies out of our mouth just come out of our mouth. And so I think I'm just going to start using that phrase all the time. Like, you need to shove that down, man. That fr- just pretend that didn't happen. Just, you should not say that thing that pop, there needs to be a filter there before it comes out. Just shove that down. But I want to do something fun this morning as well, okay? We're not going to tell jokes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe a little bit here and there, but I want to play a game, okay? Here's what we're going to do. This is, the category is purpose shift. The category is purpose shift. And I'm going to give you the original purpose for a product And I want you to tell me what that product is. Those of you that love Jeopardy are going to absolutely love this, okay? So here we go. This dental hygiene product was first marketed as a floor cleaner. Listerine. Listerine. Very good. Yeah. And the best part is I recognize that voice. (laughs) And I know that's a huge Jeopardy fan. Here's another one. This children's toy was originally designed as a stabilization tool for ships at sea. It is the slinky. The slinky was designed as a stabilization tool for ships at sea before it was turned into a children's toy. Here's another one. Sheets of this office supply product were supposed to make great textured wallpaper before IBM started using it to ship their computers. The correct answer was, what is bubble wrap? But I will allow it. (laughs) Bubble wrap, yes. This pliable substance was meant to be a cleaning tool for getting dirt and grime off of walls until kids started using it to make shapes. Play-Doh is the correct answer. And for a thousand, first sold as a nerve tonic to relieve exhaustion, this now popular drink once included the ingredients for cocaine. Coca-Cola, you guys are good, man. Very good. And thank you for letting me live out my lifelong dream of pretending to be Alex Trebek. That was, that was fun for me. I can't tell you why, but that was fun for me. So purpose shift. That's what we're talking about today. Purpose shift. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes the original purpose made no sense. Sometimes it can be an incredibly dangerous thing when we lose sight of the purpose of something and we forget about the reason why we had it in the first place. And that's why we're doing this series. It's called Light of the World. I believe that too many of us have lost sight of the real purpose behind our Christmas celebrations. And what I mean by that may actually surprise you a little bit. There are lots of things that distract us from the real meaning behind Christmas. Of course, there's presents and shopping and food and parties and decorations and lights and Santa Claus. And don't get me wrong, I love 
those things, especially the food part. I'm very partial to the food part of the Christmas celebrations. But even for those of us who are in church regularly and would say that we follow after Jesus, we can still tend to lose sight of the real purpose behind all of that celebration. See, if I were to ask all of you to tell me why we celebrate Christmas, probably a lot of you would give me the answer because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. And that's not wrong. We see it everywhere. Nativity scenes, dramas about the nativity, lots and lots of sermons will be preached this month about the birth of Jesus and all the circumstances surrounding that miraculous event. We have stories and art and songs all about Mary and the baby and the journey to Bethlehem and the shepherds and the angels and and all of those are, are good things. But what's really interesting to me as I study scripture is that if it weren't for Matthew and Luke, we actually wouldn't know much about Jesus' birth at all. And that's kind of amazing when you think about it because there are four Gospels and two of them, Mark and John, do not give us anything about the birth of Jesus. They just completely skip over it. So for people in the early church who didn't have the full New Testament, some of them who were believers in Jesus had no record of how he was born and the details surrounding that. And that's amazing to me because this is, for us, one of the most well-known Bible stories in existence. We love the story of the nativity and Jesus' birth and all of the details surrounding that. And it certainly is important to understand and, and, and know the significance of all of that. But here's why I think that this purpose shift thing can be kind of important and, and kind of even dangerous for us. Satan knows this. Satan knows that if you want to make a Christian less effective for Jesus, you distract them with what seem like godly things. If you want to make a Christian less effective for Jesus, you distract them with seemingly godly things. Why? Because if you distract them with something that is obviously ungodly, well, it's pretty easy to see, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to get back over here. But if you distract them with something that's actually pretty good, but they're not doing what God really wants them to do. They're not focused on what God wants them to focus on. They sort of make this other side thing their priority, but it's actually a good thing, something that seems very godly. Then you can dramatically limit their effectiveness. And that's my concern in all of this, that in our zeal to remember and celebrate the birth of Christ, that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we kind of lose our focus on the reason why he came. So there's nothing wrong with preaching about the who, the what, the when, the where, and the how of Jesus' birth. And of course, many, many sermons will be preached around this area and around the world on those themes this year. And last year, we preached about it. And next year, we probably will again. But this year, this season, we just wanna do something a little different. We just wanna focus everything on the reason why. So Jesus came to this earth as a baby and that whole process and we could walk through and probably most of us know it pretty well. Why? And what was the significance of it? And what does it mean to us now? And how is it supposed to change our lives? What is the real purpose behind our Christmas celebration? Why did Jesus come into our world? See, for some of us, Jesus is sort of like a a spiritual Santa Claus, You know how Santa works, right? Once a year, he comes and he gives you gifts and then he takes off and he's out of your life for the next year until you need him to give you gifts again. Of course, he's still 
you know, watching you when you're sleeping for some reason and bugging your phones and monitoring your internet connection or something like that to make sure you're good. But he pretty much stays out of your life until next year when he comes back to give you gifts. And that's how some of us treat Jesus. Like he just came here to sort of be our spiritual Santa Claus. And when there's a crisis, when something goes wrong, when we need him for something, we're all like, Jesus, take the wheel. And then when everything's good again, we're like, move over, Jesus, I've got it from here. And so we treat Jesus kind of like our own spiritual Santa Claus. He's there when we need him. We kind of shove him out when he's not. Is that why Jesus came into this world? Or was it for something more? That's our focus in this series. So the question we want to ask is not just how did Jesus come into our world, but why did Jesus come into our world? I think it's an incredibly important question. We are going to pull the camera back quite a bit. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. And this is actually what John does. So John does not give us anything about Jesus' birth. He actually starts way, way, way before that. The beginning of time. He pulls back. And we're going to look at way before and way after and talk about what does it mean that Jesus came into this world as a little baby. So you can follow along with us in John chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. You can use the YouVersion Bible app. Go to efree.org slash Bible. You'll find everything there for you as well. And follow along with us as we start reading through John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Before we go any further, let's just pray real quick and ask God to guide us as we study this passage. God, we thank you for your word and for what it means to us today. And I pray now for wisdom for all of us, that you would would illuminate our hearts to understand what you have to say to us, to understand what this passage means about you and about Jesus, and to make it real in our hearts. Help us to understand, as difficult as it is to understand, help us to understand, Lord, as best as possible, how we can trust in you and even believe what we can't fully understand yet. And in your name, we pray, amen. Well, it's very interesting to me that John does not start his gospel with the birth of Jesus or with the birth of John the Baptist or with uh, a lineage tracing back to Abraham or Adam. No, John starts in the very, very beginning of time. Those verses that we just read are really poetic. It's a beautiful artistic passage. And the way it's written has caused many scholars to believe that this was actually a worship song that John probably wrote this as a worship song that was sung in churches to remind everyone about who Jesus was. So it's an incredible passage. 
And John uses it to communicate that there is something more to Jesus than just he was born and he came from God. He wants us to understand the attributes that he has. He wants us to know a little bit more about him. And so what we do today may feel a little bit like sort of a seminary lesson in theology. What we're actually going to study today is called Christology. It's the study of Christ, the study of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we're going to learn some points about him that may be familiar to you, but I think we need to remember this Jesus, this little baby that we see in those nativity scenes, remember who he really is. And that's where John starts. That's what he wants to remind us of. And what we talk about today will then give us a foundation for what we talk about for the next several weeks. So John 1, verse 1, says, in the beginning, the word. Now stop right there. In the beginning, the word. John uses the word a lot, so we need to understand what the word means. When John says the word in this context, he is referring to Jesus. And in your weekly program there, you've got some notes. If you want to take those, your first fill-in is Jesus. The word is Jesus. Now, how do we know that the word is Jesus? Well, we look down a little further in the chapter to verse 14. It says, so the word became human and made his home among us. Who does that sound like? Jesus. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. Clearly, he is talking about Jesus. In Revelation, John also wrote about Jesus. He called him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he said he wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. So Jesus is what John means when he's talking about the word and the word of God. And you might say, hold on a second. I thought that the Bible was the word of God. How can we make sense of this here? Well, the Greek word for word used here is logos. And logos essentially means a message. It's the message of God. And so Jesus is the message of God in personal form. And the Bible is the message of God in written form. Both of them are the message of God. And so it's perfectly appropriate for both Jesus and the Bible to be called the word and to be called the word of God. Really, it's the Greek word logos. It is God's message to us. Both were given to teach people about God and communicate from God. What John is trying to do here is communicate to us that Jesus is more than just this baby that came into this world, lived a perfect life and and died on a cross. Jesus is the word, the message that comes from God. And he wants us to know there is something, something so much more to him. And so he says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't say in the beginning the word was created. It already existed. And so our second point is that Jesus always existed. In the beginning, the word already existed. Jesus already existed. Now, here's the thing. If you're like me and you think about stuff like that a lot, it can really start to hurt your head. How many of you get headaches when you think about the mysteries of God? Just be honest, okay? Like, whoa, that is not, that is hard to comprehend. That's hard to understand. And so you might ask me, how is it possible that anything could have always existed? How could anything truly be eternal, past and future? And the answer to that, honestly, is I don't fully know how that works, but I believe that it's true. 
So the question is, can I be okay with that? Can I accept the fact that there are some things that I believe are true, but I can't fully understand or grasp how they're possible? And to help you with this, I want to share a couple of analogies, okay? And this, this might be helpful for you, and it may not. You may just need to check out for the next few minutes because this may not do anything for you. But here's the thing. Even if for 99% of you, this does not help you at all, it is very possible that for a few of you, 1% of you who have been struggling with understanding some of these difficult things that are, that are out there to comprehend, this might really help you to make some sense of the mysteries of God that we cannot understand. So for those of you that may struggle with things like that, that's why I'm including this here. And the rest of you can be along from the, for the ride and hopefully you'll get something out of it too. So there's this guy named Edwin Abbott who in 1884 wrote a book called Flatland. I have never read the whole thing. Uh, But it is a fascinating story and the purpose of Flatland for Edwin Abbott was to write a satire about the government. See, back in his day, there were problems with their government leaders and he wanted to point out some of those problems. You wouldn't understand. So he intended this book as satire, but how people ended up taking it was more because of the way he wrote the story. Very creative. Nothing like this that I'm aware of had ever been done before. Flatland was a two-dimensional space where the characters could only see the edges of things. They could only see lines and they could only infer shapes by the shading around them. So there were squares and circles and triangles, but the way you would know that is actually by looking at the lines and sort of seeing the edges of them and that's all they could see. They had no concept of a third dimension of space. There were no cubes, just squares, no spheres, just circles, and they could not comprehend a third dimension. And then this three-dimensional character all of a sudden comes into their world. Now, they see this as a circle, of course, but it's actually a sphere. And that sphere could move up and out of their world and then down into their world again. And to them, it looked like it was magically disappearing and reappearing. It was incredible. And this sphere could actually look down and see everything going on in Flatland and could see all the different things that were happening, but the people that were in Flatland couldn't see any of that. And so they were very confused and could not believe that there was a third dimension. It was unfathomable to them that this being could actually see through walls and see inside of them and do all these things that just seemed too miraculous for them to understand until the 3D character pulls one of the 2D characters out of Flatland And then suddenly he finally can see. He can see three dimensions. He can see spheres instead of circles and cubes instead of squares. And he can look down and see all of Flatland and see what's going on in in other rooms. And to anyone in Flatland, it would seem like he could see through walls and disappear and appear in another place. That helps me to make some sense of my own difficulty in perceiving what happens in the spiritual realm. I don't understand how Jesus could walk through walls or disappear and reappear. I don't understand how, the, how, how God really works. I don't understand how Jesus could have always existed. But if I think about it from the perspective of a flatlander, I think maybe, just maybe, there is more to reality than I can currently comprehend because it's all I know. And so I may not understand certain things. That doesn't mean they're not true. And I have good reason to believe they are true, even if I can't fully comprehend them. I think that's what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, now we see things imperfectly 
like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. See, it's okay that we don't fully understand everything. We are finite humans after all. But the promise of God is that one day for followers of him, we will know fully. He will open our eyes. He will pull us out of flatland and we will be able to see and understand things that we never have before. Now I do have one more illustration to give you, but I I need to cover point number three first. So let's go back to John 1.1. We'll come back to another illustration in just a minute. John 1.1 says, the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, stop right there. This is the third major claim about Jesus and we haven't even made it past the first verse yet. John is really establishing some incredible theological truth about who this Jesus is. Jesus, the word, is God. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is God. The word is Jesus. He always existed and he is God. Now you might rightly ask, how is that possible? He's called the son of God. How can the son of God be equal with God? We call him God the father. So there's a son and there's a father. How can those two things be equal? And that's an excellent question. How can Jesus be a distinct person of some sense and yet also fully God? And yet we believe there's only one God. How can we make sense of all of this? Well, here is my answer. I don't know. I honestly don't fully understand it and I don't think that I can. But I can show you why I believe it. First, let me just define what we believe at this church. This comes from our statement of faith. It says, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we believe in one God who exists eternally in unity in three different persons. Now, to be honest, we're not sure if persons is really the best word for it. Um, over the years, people have debated that and, and suggested different words, like maybe we should call it substances. But that sort of sounds a little chemical or something. Maybe we should call it parts. Maybe we should call it components. Maybe we should call it essences. And there are all these different words that have been thrown out for it. And most scholars have just concluded, let's just call it persons. It's not perfect. It it kind of communicates the wrong thing. It almost communicates too much separateness because there is a oneness and a unity that is here. And yet there is also a distinctiveness that we can't fully understand. And so most scholars have just decided we're going to call it persons. Well, why do we believe this? Why do we believe that Jesus is God, that there's a Holy Spirit who's also God? Let me just show you a few of the examples. John, of course, throughout his gospel, says many times that Jesus is God. We just saw one instance. The word was with God and the word was God. And yet we already saw that he equated word with Jesus. So John says many times that Jesus is God. But all the way back in Genesis, we see some examples of these three persons or distinctive aspects of God. We don't even have good language to describe it. But in Genesis 1, verse 1, we read this. 
In the beginning, God, that's Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God, that's Ruah Elohim, was hovering over the surface of the waters. There is some distinction there between God, Elohim, and Ruah Elohim, which is the spirit of God. God did this and the spirit of God did this and there's some kind of a distinction there between them. Over in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, we read, for a child is born to us, A son is given to us. This is a prophecy about Jesus. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Get this, Mighty God. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. But there's a God the Father. And so the Messiah is also called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah says that he will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Several times Isaiah talks about God and his spirit in a kind of distinctive way. I'm not going to show you all of them, but I'm just going to give you one example. This is from chapter 48, verse 16. He says, come closer and listen to this. From the beginning, I have told you plainly what would happen. And now the sovereign Lord and his spirit have sent me with this message. It's also Isaiah who talks about the Messiah being called Emmanuel which means God with us. And we could go on and on with dozens of these examples that exhibit sort of the distinctiveness of the different characters or persons of God, and yet they are united as one God. This is why we believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are all God. They exist in what we call the Trinity. Or some people call it the triunity, which might even be a better term but it's the three persons of what we call the Godhead, if you've ever heard that term. It's the three persons of the Trinity in one. There's distinctiveness and yet there's togetherness and we can't fully make sense of that. But it's also important to understand that when we talk about the Son of God or God the Son, we are not necessarily speaking in terms of family relationships, See, for you and I today, when we say this person is someone's son, we pretty much mean there's a dad and this is their son or maybe their adopted son. And we expect a a kind of a family relationship. Back in ancient times, the word for son was sometimes used for kingly relationships, royal relationships. And so you'd have a king over this kingdom who was maybe a little more powerful and a king over this kingdom who was maybe a little less powerful and this king would become subservient to this king so that there'd be no fighting between them. And this king would refer to this king as his son. Doesn't mean they're not both kings. Doesn't mean they don't both have kingdoms. Doesn't mean this guy's his biological son or even his adopted son. It was a term of relationship, a term of position, of title, of role. And that's more a more appropriate way to think about the title son of God or God the son and God the father. It's not so much about a family relationship as it is about a position, a role relationship. And we actually see this with Jesus. Jesus is equally God, but he submits himself to the father. In the garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the son puts himself under God's authority. 
So Jesus is not lesser or subordinate in divinity or equality, and yet he does subordinate himself for the purpose of will to a subordinate role, and that's where the Son and the Father come from. Now, before we move on, I want to give you that second illustration. This might be helpful for some of you. C.S. Lewis has this great book called Mere Christianity, and there's a chapter in there about prayer and explaining some things about prayer. Uh, One of my favorite things about this chapter is that he says, hey, by the way, it's totally fine if you want to skip this chapter. Uh, because for some of you, he says, you're, you're not going to need this. You're not going to want this. You can skip on by this if you need to. And I feel the same way about this. This is an illustration that may help some of you and others of you, you may just go, I don't even need to worry about it. But here it is. When Lewis is trying to explain how God could possibly hear and, and comprehend all of the prayers around the world in the same instant, His answer to that problem is that God is not bound by time in the way that you and I are. And so he uses this illustration. He says, if you were to take a piece of paper and you draw a line on that piece of paper and call that line our timeline, you could put a dot on there for where we're at today and you could put a dot on there for where we were at a month ago and a dot on there for where we'll be in a month from now and we are bound by that timeline. We experience life through that timeline. And then if you ask the question, where is God? The answer is, God's the paper. God is all around that. He is outside of that. He is through that. He's not bound by it. Now, there are great Christian people who would disagree with that explanation of it. And so I'm not saying that that's the only way to understand it. But that's what helps me. I'm just sharing with you what helps me to understand. How could Jesus have always existed? Doesn't he have to have a beginning? Well, only from our perspective here in Flatland that time is something we're bound by. But if you can break outside of being bound by time, it's not a big deal. If God is the page and he existed from our perspective before time started and he exists, you know, way over here and all around and everywhere, he was already there. And that's what John, I think, is saying. In the beginning, the word was already there, already in existence, didn't have a beginning, exists eternally. That's what our statement of faith says. And that's how I understand that is with those kinds of illustrations. So hopefully that on some level is maybe helpful for some of you who may have been wrestling through this as I have in the past. Back to John chapter one, verse two. Hey, we've made it to verse two, everybody. Isn't that exciting? I just wanted to point that out. He, that's Jesus, existed in the beginning with God. Just in case we weren't clear on that, John gives us another statement. He existed in the beginning with God. And we know that he thinks he was God and all of that, we've covered that. Verse three, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. This is point number four. Jesus created everything. Did you know that? Did you know God was involved in creation? We saw that his spirit was involved at creation. And now John is telling us Jesus was involved at creation too. In fact, he says, nothing was created without Jesus' involvement. Nothing was created except through him. That's amazing. So let's review now. We know that the word is Jesus. That Jesus always existed. That Jesus is God. That Jesus created everything. That is the foundation that we need to go into the rest of this series. We need to understand who this Jesus is and the magnitude of what he's done given who he is. See, John is setting up his gospel, what he's about to describe, and he wants his readers to understand right at the beginning how incredible this is. 
How unbelievable this is. And let me phrase it this way. Let me put it into a question. Why would Jesus, who is God and who existed eternally and who created everything and and who was with God in the beginning of it all, why would Jesus, God, come down to earth as a little baby to be born a smelly, stinky, slow human? Why would anyone with that kind of a background choose that kind of a role? Do you see what I'm getting at there? It's amazing. There's this amazing contrast that we have there. And at Christmas time, we love the nativity scenes and the nativity dramas. And we think about Jesus as a baby and Silent Night and Mary Did You Know and all that stuff. But the next time you look at a nativity scene, here's what I hope you'll do. I hope you will stare at that little figurine of the baby Jesus. And instead of thinking, oh, that's so cute. I hope that you will think, wow, that baby represents God. That baby represents Jesus, who is God, who existed eternally, who had everything in the world, who created everything, and he subjected himself to that? That's amazing. We cannot let the magnitude of this, the the awesomeness of this, be lost on us. There's something incredibly strange and wonderful and contradictory about the God of the universe choosing to come down and become a baby in the way he did. From the highest of highs to what would seem to us like the lowest of lows. And the question for us has to be, why? Why would he do that? Why would he put himself through that? In John 17, five, Jesus prays, now father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Jesus had glory all kinds of glory. And he gave that up. In Philippians 2, 7, we read that Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Why would he do that? Here's why. Back to John 1, verse 4. The word, we know that's Jesus, gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Of course, it tries. The darkness tries. And the world that Jesus came into as a baby had a lot of darkness into it. And so here's what Jesus did. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. And we're seeing this different term now. Before it was all the word, the word, the word. Now it's all the light, the light, the light. So what is this light? Verse nine, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That is how John sets up the life of Jesus the ministry of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. The light was coming into the world. Why did Jesus come into our world? Why would he subject himself to the pain of humanity and and sickness? Why would he give up his heavenly privileges? Why would he endure all of the temptations that we experience? He was tempted, the Bible says, in every way as we are, and yet he did not sin, he did not fall, he did not do wrong. Why would he subject himself 
to be beaten and abused and falsely accused and to die a death on a cross? Why would he do all of that with the glory that he had? And the answer is because he had something that all of us needed and none of us could earn. He could provide something for us that only he could provide because he was the true light. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light. And he could bring us something that we could never get on our own. For us to have a relationship with God, Jesus had to come into the world to be a sacrifice for us. And he did it in such a way that he would leave no doubt that he was doing this for us, sacrificing for us, had experienced every temptation we struggle with. He did not come in as royalty. He did not come in with a cushy life where people could say, yeah, you, you, you know, died as a sacrifice for us, but you had a pretty good life. No, he had some challenges. He had a lot of challenges. He came in to this poor, awful situation where they didn't even have an appropriate room for him. He did all of that to bring us light. Jesus came into our world, not so we could celebrate his birth, but so we could live in the light. Think about this. Before Jesus left his disciples, as he was having dinner with them, there was one thing he told them to make sure they remembered. He didn't say, guys, I really want you to remember to celebrate my birth one time a year. He did not say, guys, I'd I'd really appreciate it if you would create some big entertaining shows. Just really pull all the stops out to show people how I was born. Your best actors, your best special effects, make a big deal about my birth. He didn't say that. He didn't say, guys, I'd really appreciate it if you would um, find a way to shift the focus away from my sacrifice to save you and more onto yourselves. Like, I have a bunch of sales and shop and give each other gifts and somehow make, find a way to make it about you. It's not what he said. He said, do this in remembrance of me, of my death. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. So this is my blood that's poured out for you. Do this to remember my sacrifice for you. He wanted us to remember what he did at the end of his life on earth. Not just what he did at the beginning. Now I have to add some clarification. You know that. Because I am not saying that we should not give presents at Christmas time. So all of you kids can just take a big sigh of relief. If there are any children in here, I'm not saying it's wrong to put up lights. So those of you who have told me already that you've put all the lights up around your house, I was not silently judging you. I am not saying that we can't celebrate the birth of Jesus. We can and we should and it's awesome and it's great to know those things and they are in the Bible. Matthew and Luke tell us all about them and we should learn and study those things. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is simply this. We have to get back to the real purpose for Christmas. The real purpose for those of us who follow Jesus is not the presents or the lights or Santa Claus or food or family or even the nativities or anything like that. It's not even the Christmas story. The real reason Jesus came into this world as a little baby was to bring light and life into a dark and dying world. That is the real purpose for celebration. So as we enter this Christmas season, can I just leave you with some challenges? Here are my challenges for you. What will your priorities look like this Christmas? 
What will get your time? What will you and your family talk about? What will your friends see and hear in you? What will your alone time look like? What will you spend your time doing? What will be your priority? Will it reflect the light that comes from Jesus? There are so many distractions that want to keep us from focusing on what Jesus did for us. But we need to live in the light. We need to show the light of Christ and the reason Jesus came. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us do that. And then we are going to remember his sacrifice for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you came not just so that we would remember your birth, as miraculous and amazing as that is, but so that we would remember how you died for us and you rose again so that we can have life and we can have light and you are the true light, Lord. So I pray that you would help us to remember that this season, that we would not get distracted by all of the worldly or material things or even distracted by some of the seemingly good things if they get in the way of our focus on you and why you came. Yes, it's amazing that you came into this world as a baby, but why you did it is even more amazing. You gave up your glory. You gave up that incredible relationship that you had, being willing to be separated for a time. And that's another thing we don't understand, to take our sin so that you could be punished in our place and we could have life and light in you. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Help us to live that light in our life. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen.